The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. If you've been coming the last couple of weeks, you know that uh, we've been looking at uh, the experience of embodiment, both as a real protection for the mind. If we're not aware of the body, that means, in a sense, the mind, the thinking mind, is untethered and it's free to spin without reference to, in a sense, reality. And it can get in trouble. <laughs> but to the degree that we're somewhat aware of the body, then if my mind starts to spin in, let's say, negative ways, worrying, planning, hating, well, that kind of mental reactivity, thinking that's driven by greed or driven by aversion, it's tight. So if I'm somewhat aware of my body, I'll notice energetically that the system is getting tied up in knots. And it's sort of a important feedback mechanism. But when we're so lost in thought, so absorbed in the content of our thoughts, so there's no part of awareness that is aware of the body, then we can spin for a long time. And basically, the mind not is not aware of the damage that's being done. Have you noticed that sometimes? Like when you're in an obsessive pattern, and maybe you've been spinning for much of a day, even not obviously continuously, but the mind sort of going back, going back, going back to the drama. And then at some point, if we're fortunate, there's a, a little awakening and the mind realizes what's been going on, like I've been obsessing. And it sort of surveys the, the situation. And we feel energetically wrung out, tied up in knots, beaten up basically by the mental activity that's been playing itself out. And it can really break our heart just seeing how uh, the body, in a sense, is subject, unavoidably subject to whatever the mind's doing. And if the mind is in a negative cycle, obsessive cycle, then the body, more than the effects on the people we love, directly we see the effect on the body. And to the same, in the same way, if the mind, the mental activity is not based on greed, anger, and delusion, but it's just the mind is, the thinking mind is more grounded in love, compassion, kind of letting go, uh, contentedness. Then we'll notice, if you check, you notice the imprint on the body, the effect on the body from what the mind has been up to. We'll see it, it doesn't feel damaged. It doesn't feel entangled. It doesn't feel beaten up by what the mind has been involved in. So this mindfulness of the body, this experience of embodiment, you know, we're training awareness to keep checking in with the experience of the body, this experience of embodiment, and to sustain the awareness of the body. Now, it's not, it's not going to be an immediate habit, this new habit, because we have a really deep, deeply invested habit of being disconnected with the body, being unaware. And it doesn't mean we don't recognize the body. 
but we do, but instead of really the awareness settling in to the body in a non-judging way, we tend to be reactive. Oh, it's like, I don't want to be there. Yeah, I'm, so there's a moment of connection with the body and then an immediate like, I don't really want to be feeling this. Because sometimes it feels somewhat numb in the body because we haven't been there very, very long. We're in the habit of not knowing. So it feels numb or sometimes it feels really hot and unpleasant or claustrophobic or basically any experience of the, under the sun when we settle back into the body. That's why it's so nice once a day, you know, if we have a formal practice, the beginning part of the practice at least, we're coming back to the body. It's a real homecoming. Oh, there's a body here. And I think it's really useful. I mean, there's there's definitely a place in practice for creativity. I find it very useful in that moment, in those moments of returning where let's say I've been mostly lost in thought, interacting, doing what needs to be done, but not so intimate, not the mind, the knowing mind, not so aware of the body. So then there's that transition. Oh, there is a body here. And it's like remembering there's this soft, tender creature here, this body. And through no choice of its own, this body, you know, has been tethered to the mind. Who knows how that all works, but somewhere along the process, you know, there's this embryo in some womb, and somehow the spark of consciousness of this mind stream gets tethered to that body, and there's this dance, this unavoidable, inevitable dance, that for this lifetime, this mind stream and this body, you guys are going to be unavoidably hanging out together and affecting each other back and forth, right? Just like when the body's in a funk, like sick, doesn't it affect the sort of the mind stream, how the mind unfolds? And when the mind is doing whatever it's doing because of the habit, it really affects the body. And in a way, the body is sort of gets the losing end of this I mean, I don't know if that's really true, but in a real way, it's like, you know, our, the mind, the mind's relationship to the body is a lot like the mind, our relationship to the earth. You know, it's like it's our dumping ground, or we see it as some buffet table that we can just take whatever we want, and we don't have to worry about the consequences. It's like my body's this beast of burden. I just tell it to do. I expect it to do what I tell it to do. You know, and if it doesn't do what I tell it to do, I, I just whip it a little bit or, you know, or we dangle a little incentive. You know, you do what I tell you to do and then you get a nice bath at the end of the day or I'll put something sweet in your mouth. I mean, we have all kinds of neurotic ways of relating to the body. And like I mentioned a few moments ago, one of the most neurotic is like, Boy, I've made a real mess here. I'm just going to pretend it isn't here anymore. You know, we polluted the body. We've tied it up in knots. And then, no surprise, it's like not pleasant to be here. So we just practice being unaware, oblivious to the body. And then that has all kinds of consequences because 
how can we be in this harmonious, loving relationship with the body when we uh, are unaware, when we're not present? We can't really have compassion. We can't really respond compassionately to anything that we're not intimate with, not connecting with. How could we? Like, how can we have a healthy relationship with our pet, with our partner, with a friend, with a colleague at work, with any community if we're not willing to really show up? And you can't show up in a defended way or with a fixed view even. It's so, it's, uh, we think connecting with the body, connecting with a moment, connecting with another human being, we arrogantly assume that that's an easy thing to do, but it's not. One of the things our practice reveals probably more than anything is how challenging that is. Like just for those of you who live with someone or even a, a pet, so just when you walk in the door tonight, just try to have a few moments of authentic connection. And what you'll notice is all the baggage that's in the way, like expectations. It's like, well, I'm not going to connect with you if you're not willing to connect with me. You know, it's like the setup. Like, you don't seem to be there. Why should I have to be there for you? Or why should I, you know, I've got things I need to do. I got thoughts I need to think. <laughs> Plans to make, worries to think through. Revenged plot. <laughs> it's like it's true. So to to really settle in, I mean how many times for those of us who tend to be on the impo- uh, impatient side of things, how many times when we're in a moment of connecting. could be connecting with our body, like when we brush our teeth, something simple, or when we're using the toilet. And it's like we don't really want to just be there, really show up and do what needs to be done with integrity, with awareness. Which is like we want to be done so we can move on to the next thing. And it's the same thing when we're having a moment with another being. Or really any moment of our life. That moment is just there so that I can get to the next moment. But then, of course, when we get to the next moment, the same thing happens. Even if we've, in a sense, been looking forward to that moment, like if we've been really looking forward to eating something, do you notice when you finally get there and you're eating it, you're looking forward, you're leaning into something different than the thing you were looking forward to or thought was going to somehow be meaningful. But then, for whatever reason, because it's not the habit of the mind, we don't actually land, we're not in the experience. I think it was last week, I talked about uh, working with pain. And um, I guess it was maybe two weeks ago, before I I was teaching the retreat on the East Coast last Sunday. Um, But it's so interesting, you know, one of the, like I mentioned, one of the reasons we don't want to land in the body is it's either, it's so unfamiliar, it feels numb. Like when we do initially connect, 
it feels there's a strong feeling of disconnection. And the example sometimes that's given is, you know, when you squeeze, when you hold tight for a long, long time, like three, four, five minutes, and then all of a sudden it's like the hand doesn't want to open. It's like so used to being tight, closed, held, that it's almost afraid to release the tension. It's like the tension is the new normal. And sort of releasing that tension is, I don't know what's going to happen. It actually hurts for a while. And so in the different ways we've been tight, in the different ways we've been cut off from the body, it can feel scary. There can be a lot of mental resistance to opening to the body. Sometimes I recommend to people one of the first things we want to do as we start feeling attracted to this path of awakening, this path of awareness, is just to find a few minutes a couple times a day and just lie down in savasana. Some of you know that corpse pose from yoga practice. Maybe get a little pillow for the back of your head so the spine feels in alignment. You're just lying on the floor, something relatively solid, not a bed usually. Arms to the side, palms up, legs comfortably apart. Maybe put a blanket over you if it's a cool space. And then because it's, you know, for a few moments at least, it will be relatively comfortable lying down, the mind will tolerate being aware of the body. And just have the sense like, I have nothing to do now but to be aware of the natural process of relaxation, like the body in its non-doing state. I'm not asking it to dance. I'm not even asking it to sit up. I'm just, the floor is here, you know, and there's gravity, and so there's this natural connection, body resting, settling into the experience of contact, weight, pressure, relatively neutral, right, for most people. If you have a little lower back pain, just elevate your legs, put a pillow under your knees or under your calves, and that can help, so it's really comfortable. And and simply for five or ten minutes, realize that it's safe to be intimate in the body. Oh. oh, this is what it's like to be embodied. It's really the the most important first step. And and then we get a sense of what we're doing at the beginning of a city meditation. Now, the city meditation generally as a posture is more valuable because it will support alertness in a way that lying down won't. But you can learn a lot in the lying down meditation posture because the first thing we need to learn is that it's safe to be aware of the body. It's really safe. It may not be pleasant, but it's safe. And it's in the direction of healing, in the direction of liberation. I mean, I know that's sort of a, can be a, a provocative term when you say liberation. And, and for those of you who um, sort of are afraid of this being a cult or, you know, just being idealistic, it can be a turnoff. Like, because we feel betrayed. Well, I've opened to my body. It wasn't liberating. <laughs> you know, it was unpleasant. <laughs> I had a headache and my knee hurt and that space between my shoulder blades really started to bother me. 
There was nothing liberating about that. You know, all I did is think about, you know, how much a chiropractor would cost and would it help and how do you even pick somebody who knows what they're doing and I don't want to turn my body over to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and God, I'm going to get older. It will only get worse and that person looks like they're so serene. Why doesn't all this pain happen to them? What did I do? Is it my fault? Or maybe they're just faking it. And we go, the mind just spins and spins and spins. So there are all these sort of deflecting habits. And it all arises under uh, a, out of some basic, mostly unconscious sense that being intimate with the body is not a safe thing to do. Being aware, being present. And so it's uh, for some of you, it will be new territory. And you need to boldly go into that new territory. And you have to take it step by step. It's like an acquired taste to be intimate, to be aware of the body. And to see it maybe originally, or initially rather, as this creature, okay? Somehow the sensitivity of the mind and heart unavoidably is tethered to this living beast I call my body. And it is. It's like it's an animal, except it's an animal with this sentience, this awareness. And there's no avoiding it or any means to avoid the awareness of the body is adding more stress. Like not when, when you are embodied and you don't want to be embodied, that's suffering. Right? Or when you're embodied and you want to feel in control of it, that's suffering. Or when you're embodied and you want it to be different than it is, that's suffering. The only way to tolerate the experience of embodiment is to trust the nature of the experience of embodiment. It has its own ebb and flows, health and sickness, pleasant and unpleasant, But the one common denominator for being embodied is nobody can control it. Anybody able to control the experience of your body so it's always really pleasant? I mean, one of the reasons we're so addicted to things like sex and caffeine and, and other kinds of bodily highs that we get is like we're, uh, we feel so oppressed that we can't control it, we get addicted to the sort of we keep knocking on the same doors. You know, I want that nice thing, hot bath, maybe put some Epsom salts, maybe some essential oils, you know, or, you know, I like in terms of sexual activity, I like it this way or I like it this way or, or you know, massage, you know, or, and, you know, I like all those things. I don't think there's anything wrong with those things. But I notice that to the degree my mind becomes dependent on sense pleasure in my body, right? that itself ruins it. The dependence on sense pleasure is tight, is unpleasant. The sense pleasure itself is fine. There's nothing wrong with having a nice sense experience, whether it's a really subtle sort of vibratory feeling. You know, people take a hot sauna and then you jump into cold water, neither of them are actually that pleasant. 
But if you do that in the just the right way, it's a really pleasant high in your body. You know, it's like everything's tingly and light and for a while, you know, it can be really nice. Or you get, you know, somebody who really knows what they're doing in terms of body work or energy work. Or you have really good sex or, you know, a really nice meal where you don't overeat and it's just the kind of food your body wanted and it just feels really good, especially if you're really hungry beforehand. You know, it's like a nice feeling. Or if you work out or get some physical exercise or even better, if you play in a way that involves your body and then it's like such a nice euphoria in the body. So there are definitely really pleasant states. But those pleasant states can be easily ruined by the mind states of greed, anger, and delusion, like not wanting to be here, wanting to control it, wanting to hold on to it. That's how we, in a sense, corrupt those natural bodily experiences that show up sometimes when the conditions are just right. So how are we going to heal uh, the mind, the mind's relationship to the body? And the way we think about this in Buddhism and uh, Buddhist teachings is there's embodiment, which is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and sensing the tactile experience. And then there's the mind that knows. Now, the mind that knows is often colored by these mental habits of greed, anger, and delusion. So it's not even so much where we need to do anything with the bodily experience. And we don't have to do anything with the knowing. What we have to practice, the the sort of place of practice, is how the knowing is colored. The habits of greediness, wanting things to be different than they are, the habits of aversion, not liking, not wanting, wanting to get rid of, not wanting to be here, and the habits of delusion, distraction, denial, thinking we know what's happening. So can there we're really purifying these moments of embodiment, the mind that knows, knowing the experience of the body. Sometimes it will be pleasant, sometimes it will be unpleasant, sometimes it will be neutral. But the mind that knows is capable of knowing the body without the need for coloring. That's why, you know, in terms of our basic mindfulness practice, we talk about, like being aware of the body, without judging. Can we be, like right now, we're all sitting, can we be aware of the body sitting without judging the experience, without the mind confused by any preferences that it has, without being confused. Like if we really like the sensations in the body right now, can we be aware that there's liking without being confused by the liking, like proliferating around the liking? Or if there's disliking, can we be aware of the body and the experience of not liking without being confused, taking the not liking personally? Oh, just aversion. Yeah, sometimes when there's painful sensations, the mental habit of aversion will arise. But the mind, the knowing, is capable of seeing the sensations, capable of recognizing the unpleasantness, 
and capable of recognizing the habit, the impulse, to not like the unpleasantness. All the while, not being confused. Oh, it's just this way. There's the unpleasant sensations. There's the not liking. It's just all of this being known. I don't have to, in a sense, get hooked, take the bait of the not liking, and therefore feel I have to mentally resist or move my body. And this is why sitting with physical pain can be such a powerful teacher. Because there we are, there's the sensations, the mind recognizes that the sensations are unpleasant, there's nothing we can do about that. Sensations are the way that they are, the mind recognizing the the sensations is unpleasant, that's just going to happen. You can't stop the mind from recognizing that, it's appropriate for the mind to recognize unpleasant or pleasant or neutral, depending on, you know, just based on how the mind's interpreted sensation in the past. Oh yeah, this is unpleasant. And then there's a habit of what the mind normally in the past has done with unpleasant, which is to resist it. But we can now, with mindfulness, we can see the impulse to resist without acting on it. And this is where freedom comes in. We can be afraid without acting on the fear. That's such a huge thing. Because sometimes fear, the appropriate response to fear is not to act on it. And sometimes when fear arises, there is something to do. But not always, right? Sometimes when something's unpleasant, we're touching a hot stove, it's really appropriate to do this. But sometimes things arise that are unpleasant and there's really nothing to do. And it's really nice not to neurotically do something because the mind doesn't know what to do with not liking except to re, to kind of act it out. Like sometimes I notice I'm humiliated. Um, I've done something and it really... And uh, there's all kinds of impulses to want to cover it up. You know, have you caught yourself like wanting to make excuses for yourself? Even though there's a sense that the person's going to know exactly what you're doing. Like he really feels yucky and he's just talking because he's unable to just be with the unpleasant feeling of humiliation. And it's so nice to sort of Notice the impulse to want to keep talking and instead just relax with that unpleasant feeling. Oh, this is a very unpleasant feeling of embarrassment and it's like this. And the amazing thing is it's there, it's there, and then it ceases on its own. I didn't have to defend myself or tell a story or I could just feel it. This is what grieving is about, too. So this exists not just with physical sensations, but also emotional pain. And there's a way of meeting this, not with, oh, I have to do this, but with real love. This is uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh, a wonderful Vietnamese Buddhist monk and teacher. He's getting old now. He had a, a really serious stroke about almost a year ago now. He's still alive, but not really teaching anymore, in a direct way at least. But he's written many, many books you can get. 
And uh, this is his book that I haven't seen called The Art of Power. Somebody sent me this quote from his book. One of the core practices of mindfulness is to take care of our painful emotions. We can use the energy of mindfulness to recognize the pain inside and hold it tenderly, like a mother holding her baby. And remember, emotions are both mental and physical, right? That's uh, When we talk about emotional energy, we're really talking about this intersection of body and mind. There's a visceral, embodied part of emotion, and then there's you know, a mental aspect, like it relates to some story, some image in the mind. So when next time you have this visceral pain, the pain of humiliation, or just even ordinary physical pain, can we approach it like a mother holding her baby? He goes on, the energy of mindfulness does the work of recognizing, embracing, and bringing relief. And a little later says, you may not know what is causing your pain, your despair, your fear, but if you, but if you know how to hold that pain with the energy of mindfulness, you immediately get relief because the energy of mindfulness begins to penetrate the energy of pain, of sorrow. And immediately the mind is not resisting it, not acting out its fear. And that itself is a relief. And then a little later, Thich Nhat Hanh writes, Imagine a flower in the morning. The flower is not yet open. The sunshine embraces the flower and the energy of the sunlight begins to penetrate the flower. The the sun doesn't go around the flower. The light naturally penetrates the flower. And an hour later, the flower has opened itself to the sun. The sun is our mindfulness embracing the flower of our feelings, right? The unpleasant feelings. And, of course, it's not just the unpleasant feelings. We do the same practice with neutral and with pleasant feeling. Like often when we're being aware of the breath, those of you who use the mindfulness of breathing as your main sort of anchor or training ground for awareness practice, right? often that awareness of the breath, just feeling the movement of the abdominal wall as it expands and contracts or feeling the touching as the air goes in and out of the nostrils. For a lot of folks, that's pretty neutral. It's not obviously unpleasant, not obviously pleasant, at least in the beginning. It may become pleasant as the mind becomes more concentrated, more settled. But it's usually pretty neutral. But we can have use that image from Thich Nhat Hanh, just like uh, the sunlight on a cold morning, summer morning, hitting the flower that's closed at night. You know, And as the warmth of the sunlight penetrates the flower, just as nature, it just like yields, it opens itself. Yes, right? The flower says yes to the sunlight. We even know that, you know, we're not a flower or not a flower in terms of a plant, but in a way we're our own flower. And if you've been like on a cold fall day or cold spring day and you're out early, maybe you're backpacking out in the country or whatever, and then the sun comes up, you find the spot where the sun is shining you know, and you sit down there and you just take it in and you just start to peel away the layers, right? It feels so good because even if you didn't realize it, all night when it was a little cold, the mind, just out of habit, the mind and body sort of protects itself. 
There's this, you know, the Minnesota curl that we have in the sun in the winter time, and then you know we get that first March day where the sun is really has some potency, and we sit down on a bench or somewhere, maybe even inside where the sun is shining, and we really let the body undefend itself, let the flower of the body open up. And this is a really beautiful image for the awareness with embodiment, with the experience of the body, and especially unpleasant, but also the other, the neutral and the pleasant, but especially the unpleasant, just because it evokes the sense of the necessary patience. Yes, yes, this is how the body is. Now, what you'll find, like with the image that I'm using now, you probably know that's not so easy. And what makes that hard? It's very hard to do what I've just suggested from a place of feeling oppressed by the unpleasantness. When we're in a defensive stance, then we can't do this because the motivation isn't to receive the energy of mindfulness. The motivation is to make the pain go away. So we're already in this aversive, fear-based stance. Excuse me. So that's why sometimes you have to stretch your leg out in the meditation or you have to move from a sitting to a standing posture because you have to feel relatively safe. It's only when we feel relatively safe that we're willing to shine the light of mindfulness on the body to meet the creature of the body, this this little tender creature. I mean, the body, especially this human body, we don't have a lot of armor. You know, the body's exposed. It's just this tender thing. There's something about looking at your body naked in the mirror, right? And to really see, you know, we don't, our claws are just these fingernails. Our teeth are pretty flat. They're really like, I mean... We can chew meat, but it seems like over the eons we're sort of really meant for crushing plants and maybe grains to some degree. And we got, you know, skin that's not very thick. You know, even the hair, we've lost a lot of our hair. It doesn't protect us very much. We're pretty vulnerable creatures. You know, to weather not like we even have layers of fat or much fat to protect yourself from the cool, certainly not much to protect yourselves from the heat. And to really evoke that kind of tender and to meet it, like meet the vulnerability, meet the uncertainty of the body, the vulnerability, the exposure with this tender, warm, compassionate gaze of awareness. Oh, because we can't actually protect the body. I mean, there's some things we can do, of course, but there's not, like we can't stop the aging clock. We can't really do a lot, but what we can do is meet it. I can't show up. I'm willing to be with you. I'm willing to be with you. I'm willing to be aware. I'm willing to be sensitive to what it feels like in the body. That we can do. And the more we do that, we realize how healing it is. 
So much of the pain we experience emotionally and viscerally in the body is because we've been afraid, because we've made choices to be disembodied, to not to have a body, but to not be in the body, to not be aware of it. And it's like a, it's like a slap every time, moment by moment, not like once when we disconnected, but every moment we're the awareness, the mind that knows is not knowing the body, it's like a squeeze, it's a slap to the body. It's really abusive. I know it's sort of kind of provocative to say it that way, but it's a kind of spiritual, emotional, mental abuse to be unaware, to be have a body, but to be unaware of it. In the same way, those of you who are in a committed relationship, whether it's in like a marriage or friendship or sibling or you know colleague at work, colleague in your business, to be in relationship with another human being but not actually showing up to the relationship, not really making the effort to be real, to be authentic. You know how it is to actually look in somebody's eyes, to really meet somebody's eyes, and in that moment to realize they're a sensitive being, they're a vulnerable being like this one. How That's pretty rare, isn't it? And so it's like that's why our relationships are tight because we are afraid of being in relationship with each other. We're afraid of meeting each other. And the first step, because it, this is really hard work, the first step is just to acknowledge that this is hard. That's so healing. I was talking to, uh, we had our annual volunteer meeting yesterday. Some of you, Anne was there, a couple of you were there for that. <coughs> we have it once a year. And, you know, we were talking about the intention of our community here at Come Ground is to be a welcoming, accessible community for everyone, not just, you know, in the past especially, but even today, you know, we've tended to be a community from a very specific subset of our wider culture, like generally, you know, educated, liberal, white, uh, predominantly female um, people. And uh, and it slowly has changed, become more diverse over the years. And so we were talking about, like, what gets in the way, and so we broke up into small groups, and I was in the group with our board chair, Stacy McClendon, who's an, uh, a queer African-American woman, and uh, she self-describes that herself that way. And uh, and we were talking, all th- another person was in the group, and all three of us were talking about like making our world and this place, Common Ground, a more safe, accessible place one of the first things we can do is acknowledge how hard it is to be close, (laughs) how hard it is to meet each other and to acknowledge that and to acknowledge like, like when's the last time we said to somebody, I'm really afraid showing up and meeting you. Like, I don't know how to connect with you. Like, especially when you're around somebody who's different than you, different age, different ethnic background, different cultural background than you, different 
income than you, educational background than you. You know, and wouldn't it be nice when we do feel uncomfortable to say, to be able to say, you know, I feel a little uncomfortable. I know you're a human being, or I think you're a human being, <laughs> but but I don't, I'm not sure where to begin, and I'm afraid, you know, to say something stupid. I mean, that at least is a start to acknowledge that. I mean, I was, you know, just as an example, and it's it's a little awkward to say this, but uh, some of you know Nicole Terrace, who's uh, was a longtime leader and teacher here at the center. She died a couple of weeks ago. Really a wonderful person. We have some information about her over on our compassion table in the corner there. You can read about her. She's just an amazing woman. Um, and she spent most of her life in a wheelchair from a very early age, had a, a disability, um, born with a disability, and just needed people to take care of, help her take care of most of her physical activities um, through most of her life. So really unusual existence from many of us. And so I was at the memorial service today, and there were a lot of her friends who were also in wheelchairs there and was there with me and as well as a number of other community members. And I just noticed, I mean, just to be honest, that you know, I had conversations with many people, including some of the people who have been in wheelchairs, are in wheelchairs. And I just noticed it's like a fear of making a mistake, right? And just to be really honest about that, at least honest with myself. Because then, you know what I can do? I can take refuge in the experience of embodiment. Because whatever tension, whatever fear my mind has, is getting laid down on the body. So then at least, at the very least, I can have an honest relationship with the reality of being afraid or the reality of being a little awkward or the reality of wanting to be a good person, you know, and not make a fool out of myself or whatever was sort of rattling through my mind. And you know what? I can't actually change that because it's arising due to the conditioning of this mind. So all that kind of so-called neurotic stuff, it's going to be there. We can't, like, wish it away. If you try to wish it away, it's just more neurotic stuff going on, more confusion. So the one thing we can do is start being honest. And at first we're honest with ourselves because we're able to return to this experience of embodiment. And then we can start being more honest with each other about, like, I want to connect, but I don't know how. You know? And then when we talk about the weather or something silly like that, it's like we kind of know what we're really doing is saying, you know, I'm a vulnerable being and you're a vulnerable being and I care about you and and I want to sort of sort of share this space with you. So let's do something safe and talk about the weather, you know, or how about those twins or whatever people talk about. Or whatever we talk about, even if we just go into those sort of more difficult places. But we're sort of beginning with this place of understanding that it isn't easy to be intimate. But we have this bridge, which is called the experience of embodiment. And I really encourage you to experiment with that all day long, both in your formal sitting, just hanging out in the intimacy of the body and sustaining that wholesome way of relating. Remember, if it's wholesome, 
that means it's moment to moment. It's not enough to sort of land in the experience of the body and then think you're there, because it has to be it has to be reinitiated moment by moment. Or it's not so much that the experience of intimacy is reinitiated as as much as that the habit of disengaging, the habit of disconnecting, or the habit of forgetting that there's a body that we have to practice not going down that road. So the sustaining the intimacy, the awareness of the body, means that we don't believe the impulse to get lost in thought. We don't believe the insult, the impulse rather that it's scary, that it, something needs to happen. Because a lot of the experience of embodiment is ambiguous. It's unfamiliar. So there's a strong impulse to do something, think something. So, But do we have to do something to be in the experience of embodiment? Like right now, just check. It's so much more about the not doing, the not neurotically doing something. That's what allows there to be this sustaining presence with the body. And then you can do it when you're reaching for the light switch or when you're brushing your teeth or when you're talking to another person. And it will become this um, this way of punctuating the habit of getting lost in thought because we create this new habit of being, having like an authentic, real moment of, being in the bodies like this. Not that you even need those words, of course. So I'll leave it here. We've got 10 minutes or so. It would be nice to hear from some of you. Questions, comments? Hey, you want to start us off, Anne? Insight, an embodied insight while we were meditating. But tonight? T- tonight, mm-hmm. yes. Um, of renunciation on a physical level, as an act of um, sort of non-attaching and um, of being able to freshly be present without any expectation, because I've renounced any. Uh, in a, it's a, it's a physical feeling of renouncing. Like, I renounce, I set that down, I renounce. I just kept saying that over and over, and it just felt like I was shedding a skin, like I was stepping out to the present moment without that entanglement of, uh, I think it's what you say, of like, of like having to do anything. Yeah. Just more like, I renounce anything. Of any, It was just a really... Um, muscular, almost a muscular release of like mm-hmm. shedding. Yeah, and you could say, yeah, I think that's just right. It's really great, right to the point of what we were talking about. And it's it's really another way to talk about it that might be more familiar to folks because this word renunciation, it has connotations of like uh, sacrifice, but in a negative sense, like, oh, i got to give something away. But what we're doing is we're realizing that we can renounce, we can let go of the, the neurotic sense of doing or the neurotic sense of owning our experience. And it creates so much unnecessary suffering. So, and <clears throat> some of you know this, but in, in the Buddhist teachings, he talks about three intentions 
being the only intentions you need to live your life. The intention of kindness, the intention of renunciation. But the renunciation is like thinking you have to do your life. Right? Now, like, Monday's coming. But before Monday, there's going to be later Sunday evening. <laughs> now, it will be, it seems like we got to do the later Sunday evening. Right? But is that true? Like, in just a few minutes, there's going to be this transition out of here to whatever's next for you. And conventionally speaking, you know, if you were talking to somebody, you would say, oh, I'm going to do this, or I'm doing this now, if someone calls you when you're driving home. Oh, yeah, I'm driving home. But that's just on the level of convention. In the On the level of your actual experiencing, it's just that doing is happening. Doing is happening, but no doer can be found. So this this intention of letting go or of renunciation is we're letting go of the idea that somebody's doing something. We're letting go, and this is what I meant. It has to be repeated. It can't be like one moment of letting go. Like Anne was saying, it has to be over and over, and we're shedding an old habit. And the habit, its habit is to reassert itself. Because it has so much momentum, the letting go initially has to be over and over, we got to keep putting down the idea that I have to live my life. I have to think that. I have to talk tonight. I'm here in front of the room and I have to give a talk. No. Instead, there can be an awareness that a talk is happening, right? Words are coming out. So this is a, this you can really get a sense of the liberation of understanding the intention of letting go or the intention of renunciation. We're letting go of what's not needed. This is a great quote I was going to read tonight, so it's a good time to read it. <clears throat> it's really about this experience of freedom. Thus, this is these are the Buddha's words. Thus, one regards it, right? This moment of perceiving things as they are. Thus, one regards it as empty of whatever is not there. Whatever remains, one discerns as presence. As present, there is this. So there's activity, right? That's what we actually see. There's activity, but the mind has let go of whatever is not here. And what's not here? A somebody giving a talk, a somebody sitting listening to talk. Now, our mind can tell us a story, tell the mind a story. Oh, I'm here listening to Mark talk. But that's a thought being known. So we keep letting go, like we don't need to identify with that thought, I'm here. All we know is hearing is happening. And when your mind thinks, no, no, I'm here, hearing, then that's a thought being known. Now that thought is being known. So we keep letting go of what's extra, and then what remains, the mind understands, this is being known. It's just this being known. Just this being known. Yeah, thanks, Anne. Other thoughts, questions about what was said tonight or your own experience that comes to mind? We have time for a couple more folks before we end at 8.30. comes to mind. Your own experience of embodiment, how that's been a real protection for you or a source of insight for you. Yeah, please. 
Yeah, I was just wondering, um, just along the lines of intention and embodiment, I know uh, many of the, well, at least I understand, many of the teachers in this tradition will practice, like they'll meditate all night or they'll be fasting or what intention are they cultivating through those actions? Yeah, so there, there is a, like, and this is a more conventional term or uh, meaning of renunciation where you might miss a meal or you might sit even though there's pain, but you know, you feel like you're not damaging your knees or your back. So you're just sitting because you want to use that situation of not eating the meal or sitting still for an hour or maybe even longer in order to learn something about the mind that you haven't seen before. Like the impulse to move, right? And to see that there is that impulse, but there isn't a somebody who needs to move. There's physical sensations, the perception that that, those sensations are painful, the impulse to be afraid of the pain, and all of those being known. And moment by moment, you learn, you keep seeing that, and it begins to very slowly dawn on the mind that there isn't a somebody who doesn't like the pain. There's just a, uh, a conditioned habit to not like the painful sensations of the knee. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't move the knee, but the practice of not moving, like to sit still for an hour, or the practice of not eating a meal, if someone chooses to do that, you learn a lot about the um, force of habit to want to eat is there, it's real in a sense as an impulse, a latent tendency in the mind, but it's not self. It's not personal. It's just that impulse being known. And it's so liberating to see that these impulses are real in a sense, but they're not personal. It's very liberating to see that. And it really creates a lot more freedom in our life. Like when I mentioned humiliation earlier in the evening, when we feel a lot of humiliation, we might want to run and hide, you know, but we don't have to because we know that that impulse to run and hide isn't me it's just it's there it's being known it's being felt but it's not personal and so now there's this possibility of just staying right in the mix you know there i am i did something stupid i'm right here and it's okay because there's this other option to be aware of humiliation without running but i wouldn't have known that if I didn't make that resolve to not move or to not eat or to however we might experience. Like another resolve people might make is like to purposefully go into difficult situations. Like, that's not going to be easy, but I think I'll do that. I think I'll sign up, you know. Oh, Mark's asking for somebody to give uh, the Donna talk. Like, I'll do that right now as we end. Um but sometimes they say, I ask other community members who've been around for a couple of years, maybe you want to talk for three or four minutes about how the donation, the Donna system here at the center works so people understand it. And you say, well, I'm an introvert. I don't do that kind of thing. And then, then because you're practicing, you go, well, maybe I'll do that. Maybe next time Mark asks, I'll just make the result to do it. And then you're there you are, public speaking, you know, in front of the group. 
sharing some of your thoughts. But and you and no, everything arises that arises when you're in a public speaking role, you know, all the fear, all the self consciousness. But now you're sort of using it. You say, well, yeah, there it is. It's very real. It fe- I feel it. I see it. But I'm not doing it. It's just happening because of causes and conditions. Oh my God, it's not personal. It's there. Why run from it if it's not personal? Right? It's such a. And then all of a sudden, we have so many more degrees of freedom in our lives because we don't have to do things because of habits because we realize those habits are not personal. They're there. They have some degree of momentum. They're going to express themselves. Instead, we can do what's skillful to do, what's loving to do, but not based on habit because we're not being driven by habit because we have this other alternative, which is to feel what we feel but not be driven by it. Not to have to act it out. Yeah, it's just a lot of a lot of freedom there. And because I talk so much, we need to leave it here. Just take a breath together. It's really okay to let go of the words. Some of what was said will land. Others, other what was said won't land, but that's okay. And again, take a moment to appreciate the community that we get to practice with. And appreciate all the people before us. They had busy lives. They practiced as best they could. Developed real insight, compassion, and wisdom. And were able to share what they've learned. So we're the recipients of these many, many generations of practitioners before us. But now it's our turn. And our complicated lives with our neurotic habits, it's our turn to practice and to become wise and compassionate and to share the insights of our own lives, to model wisdom, to model compassion in our lives. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.